Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch, and I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Jeff Edgers. Jeff is an American journalist and writer uh, who is a national arts reporter for The Washington Post. Uh, He is the author of Walk This Way, Run DMC Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. Uh, He also hosted Edge of Fame, which is a podcast profiling figures such as Norm MacDonald, Ava DuVernay, uh, Roseanne Barr, and Chevy Chase. Jeff, thank you for being back on the show. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, So today we're talking about a subject that I find fascinating and know very little about, uh, and specifically that is audio quality. The idea uh, that you wrote about recently of finding the perfect sound. And within that idea and within this story, there are lots of interesting little threads to pull apart, like ideas of authenticity, of technological progress and regression, uh, of quality versus accessibility. But the foundational idea... Uh, in your story, or at least kind of the way it begins, almost with a prologue of sorts, is, is a question of honesty. Um, what did audiophile Mike Esposito uh, reveal that one of the big players in the new vinyl boom, a company called Mobile Fidelity, or MoFi for short, uh, was misleading customers about? Well, and to normal people, like regular humans, this will seem almost bizarre and insane. But um, so Mobile Fidelity, they put out these uh, records that are reissues of older records, and they tend to be, um, they call them audiophile pressings. So for special people who love sound in a special way. So they'll put out like Carol King's Tapestry, but they'll do it as a one, none of this language should make any sense to you, Sonny. So just disregard <laughs> it, but it'll be a one step uh, uh, record, which in I could explain for hours what that means, but um, and it'll be at 45 RPM, not 33, because you can fit all this more music inside the grooves. And um, it'll be put out as a, a box set uh, where the record has become two records, and it's $125, and it'll sell out almost immediately. Well, depending on which record it is, sometimes they end up on eBay for hundreds more et cetera, et cetera. So the big thing is that Mobile Fidelity, which is based in California, they uh, for years have been talking about being analog only. So like all tape, everything is from tape. You get the tape from the studio, you transfer it onto you know this record. Somehow there are a few steps in between. You make a lacquer, you make a mother, a father, press them, whatever. But the idea was that the purity of the analog process, which is a big deal to a lot of people, was preserved. What this fellow, Mike Esposito, heard and then uh, broadcast on his YouTube channel, and the rumor was then found to be true, was that they were using a digital step in between. So they were capturing the audio with a digital step and then putting it on record. And you know what? Like, Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? I'll leave that to your ears. But the thing that was bizarre about it is that they basically didn't tell anyone that since they started doing it in 2011. So when people heard about that, they felt instantly betrayed. These records did not change in sound at all, but suddenly the meaning of them changed to many people. I want to I want to hit on that just a little bit, because there is a real question here about what 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 is it actually that people are looking for with these recordings and these these records? Right. Are they looking for 
pure audio fidelity? Are they looking for some sort of imagined auditory greatness? Or is it is it almost a statement of aesthetic appeal uh, as much as anything else? Is it is it a statement of belonging to say, like, here's a this is, you know, analog only We're no no digital nonsense in here. You know, what are what are people actually looking for with these albums? Well, everything. That, that's what they're looking. They're looking for all of that, and and some of them are looking for one thing, and others are looking for another. Take this comp. I mean, let's just think about how a record is made. When when the recording is made in the studio, it is then a mastering engineer works. You know, with all the knobs and the things you see in all the Hollywood movies about recording studios, moving stuff around, figuring out what the sound should be, and then it's pressed onto a record. Okay, well. There's a company in England called the Electric Recording Company, which I examined but didn't visit. Uh, the New York Times wrote a story about them a few years ago. It's kind of breathless, like, whoa, it's the greatest thing ever. And it's this guy, very nice guy, Pete Hutchison. He's got a big, long beard, and he restored all this equipment from the 50s. And what he does is he'll get the license to put out um, these canonical jazz records or blues records like Miles Davis or John Coltrane or Bill Evans. And he'll get the tapes sent to him because he takes pictures of them and shows them to you, these precious tapes from the 50s. And he will transfer them onto this record. And they will only make 300 copies. And each copy is $380 or something with you know the exchange rate. And they're instantly going for $1,000 or $2,000 on eBay because they're bought up immediately. Now, I listen to some of those records and I want to love them because they're beautiful. They're like, they look beautiful. Like the packaging is awesome. They just look special. I feel like I'm in the rarefied club when I have them. But I would listen to them and sometimes I'd compare them to like $15 reissues that I got in the 80s and I'd go boy that that sounds better or like it sounds the same or it, mm -hmm. it sounds I just I couldn't understand what was going on there and I wrote to Pete Hutchinson and he said look uh, uh he said I said who are the mastering engineers in here I said it says like some guy named CJ Potter is on here and he wrote um he wrote well look uh CJ Potter and this other guy are on there, but really they're not really mastering engineers. They're really just transfer the tape because we do no equalization. We don't do anything to those tapes. And that was what was going on. That was the most pure, authentic representation of that tape. And um, it didn't sound that great to me. Now, just to flip it quickly, I talked to a guy named Joe Harley. He oversees all of Blue Note's reissues um uh, for this tone poet program or many of them he's you know that's what he does and um joe harley was sitting in his room and across from him was this uh shelves of uh beautiful pristine original blue note records you know all the stuff that the jazz people go nutty for lee morgan blue train you know and all this stuff worth probably thousands of dollars because you know, they're in great condition. And what Joe said is, uh, and I'm not telling you to agree with him, but I'm telling you what he said. He said, every record I put out on Tone Poet is better than these because in the day, the equipment was not good enough to actually capture what was on the tape. So when you heard Lee Morgan's trumpet, you thought you were hearing something amazing and it was amazing and it's still good. There's no question, but it wasn't what was on the tape. What we're doing because we have better equipment is we're capturing what was on the tape and giving you a better product. Now, so there you go, like totally different viewpoints, 
by people putting out prized objects into this universe. And this gets to this gets to the the kind of first character we meet in in your story. It was Tom, this guy named Tom Port, um, who his his whole deal is finding uh, what he calls hot stampers, right? They're the best vinyl pressings of any given album. Um, but usually these are vintage, right? I mean, you 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 have this great little vignette in your in your piece where you're basically trying to stump him on a on a hot stamper. You're saying like, hey, here's three uh, identical albums, but not really identical. Which which is the one that you uh, like the best? How did that work out for him and for you? Well, Tom Port, the people that make new records now or reissue records on new pressings hate Tom Port so much. There are people in my story right now, <laughs> believe it or not, and I, I, I should just ignore them and let it be, but there are people in my story who will not speak to me because we had Tom Port in that story. It, it, it's that uh, uh, competitive and aggressive and nasty in this universe. And the thing about Tom Port, I love Tom Port. He, uh, because he is not, it, to him, it's a little bit of a game. I mean, the big thing that he says is basically no new records are good. Okay, well, that's not really true, but it's a marketing thing and he believes it. But what I will tell you about Tom Port is he'll say every old record is like a snowflake. No two are the same. If one rolls off the press at 1008, it's going to be different than the one that rolls off the press at 10.09. So, you know, temperature, how much you smush the vi hot vinyl with the, with the bit, you know, with the stampers, um, all that stuff. Who's doing it? Uh, you know, your sign, anything. We have no control over it. <laughs> so what Tom does is he goes out and he gets like 20 copies of Carol King's Tapestry or Dire Straits' first record. He's very like mainstream american you know you're not he's not sitting there like going over you know like uh you know very obscure free jazz he's really dealing with mainstream things but he'll listen to like 20 of these or his staff will listen to 20 of these in this room in california where there are no windows and the wires are hanging down from the ceiling to create no electrical interference and they will decide what the hot stampers are and sometimes they don't come out with a hot stamper Hot Stamper is basically the best sounding version of the record, in his opinion. And then they put it up on their website. You can go to Better Records now and look at it. And like Led Zeppelin 2 on their website right now is listed at $990. Uh, Pet Sounds, I think, goes for $649. Now, people, again, people, the people in the audio world that don't like Tom Port will say, what a ripoff, what a fraud. But I'll tell you about Tom Port. When I called him, originally a long time ago, more than a year ago. And I said, Tom, this sounds crazy. He goes, what, 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 uh, what old record do you have that you like? And I go, I don't know. Credence Clearwater Revival. I mean, when someone asked me like what old record I like, I always like to say Credence Clearwater Revival, but I did have one and it was a clean one. So he sent me the record and one side was a hot stamper and one was not. You can have that. I mean, you could in, in his universe, he will rate one as, you know, so, but I've got to tell you, that record sounded better than any version of Credence I'd ever heard. And I bought like a, a Beach Boys record off of him for, I think it was like $119. It sounds amazing. So I've not heard Tom proclaim a record to sound good and have it not sound good. And the, finally, if you don't like the record or you don't believe in the service or you don't feel like it was worth it, you just get your money back. He, he offers money back guarantees. I'm sure he might 
chatter with you or tell you why you're wrong, but he does give you your money back. So ultimately what he's doing is providing a service. So if you're a really rich person, like you own the Indianapolis Colts and you want an awesome copy of Pet Sounds and you're not looking to go all over the universe to find it, you pay him $649 and you get the, you get the best sounding copy of Pet Sounds you could find. I mean, I, I, I listen to this and I, I, a, believe you because again he 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 won your challenge he was able to pick out the hot stamper from the 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 albums that you had picked out i have no doubt that he has a sound that he is looking for but at the same time just as a as a reader and as a listener and frankly as a as a listener who is borderline tone deaf anyway this is not my realm of expertise uh i i, I can't help but wonder you know isn't this, is it a little bit like a food critic who, you know, says, look, you've never had a ribeye unless you've had the 45-day dry-aged ribeye from, you know, where, wherever, uh, whatever nice steakhouse, um, or something similar something similar to that. I mean, is, how much of this is a matter of taste versus how much of it is an objective, like, here is sound quality that we can measure and it is better? Well, I, so... There's a subtlety here that really is very good with your analogy. Um, and like wine is a good thing that can come into this. You know, it's like there's a subtlety to what you're to what we're talking about. But I will also tell you that if I had you come over, Sonny, and you're welcome anytime, as you know, in the barn. If I had you come over, I could very quickly play two different records for you. And you would understand why one is garbage and one is great. So like. There's a Beach Boys, I mentioned it in the thing, but there's like a Greatest Hits um, box set that came out. And I love, I gobble up anything by the Beach Boys. I was so excited to have this. It's like all cool mixes of like seven, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. But if you put that record on, if you put In My Room on off that record, and then you put it on compared to the reissue of that Analog Productions did, it's just like, I'm stealing this from someone, but it's like the difference between like shooting a bullet and throwing a bullet. It's like the record version that is on Capitol, and I love Capitol. I'm not criticizing, you know, they have the they have the building with all the, you know, with the sign on it and the circle and it's still there. Um, it just sounds terrible. It, it sounds really uh, squashed. It, you can hear a hiss throughout it. It just sounds bad. And when you listen to the other version, you go, oh my God. So I was just doing a David Byrne profile and I had Talking Heads 77 that I bought maybe in 2014 or 15, it was a reissue. So just as a hunch, I went to my local record store. I knew they had like six copies that were clean of the original pressing. I just bought one. It was like 35 bucks. And again, I put it on and it was crystal clear that one record was better than the other. Where I have more trouble is when I'm dealing with like multiple reissues and I'm particularly if I'm in a room with like these guys and they're like, what do you think's better? You know, or like, isn't mine better? I find that harder, but it's clear that there are versions of these records that are good and versions that are bad. And we haven't even, I'm sure you're going to get into it, but we haven't even talked about digital, which is, you know, the revelation for me in this story was I can hear now without a billion dollars of equipment, the difference between a high res version of a song and, you know, sort of like low res Spotify version. You can hear it now. And I've never been able to do that before. I want to let's let's skip ahead to that since since you you bring it up. I um I find the the conversation about MP3 versus lossless sound versus you know whatever uh, and and Neil Young's quixotic I think effort uh, a few years back to try and push for this you know higher quality audio really fascinating because 
it tries to have the best of all worlds. It tr- you were, we're trying to have the uh, the portability of the MP3 with the quality of the vinyl, but it doesn't quite work out because people don't care about having both, right? I mean, I I want can you? So the question here is twofold. One is, could you explain to us the difference between MP3 and like higher quality lossless? Uh, digital recordings, um, and also why it just has failed to take off as a as a format. Well, so I can't really explain it scientifically, other than all these analogies that people give you that seem to make some sense to me. But I mean, basically, the idea with MP3 was that you were the goal. The primary goal was getting as much material onto these portable devices, and so to do that, the technologists said, "You know what? We can strip away." parts of these recordings and we can, um, you know, provide them on, on phones or whatever device, iPods, you know, that little, I mean, I love those iPods. I love the one that was like a pack of gum. I thought that was a mm. cool one. I didn't really like the one that was tiny square because I always lost that one. The one that you could put on your, on your shirt or something. Um, but so that was the idea behind that. And I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really notice. I was like, Oh, this sounds good. It was only later when I heard what high-res audio is that I thought, ah, um, this is really um, clear. You know, it's like, it's obvious to me there's something going on in this song that I didn't hear on the MP3. And, you know, it's even reached the point, like today on on your iPhone, it's like you need this DAC, this digital analog converter. They still won't allow you to listen to high-res audio on your iPhone. You need this little connector basically between your headphones and your, and your iPhone, if you want to listen to high res, which is a pain, you know, like, I don't understand. I understand why mm. it's like, they don't want to build, they don't want a chip that's so big that it, it, it creates an impact on your phone. And they've determined that mathematically it's more important to be able to make the iPhone the way they make it than to put better quality sound on it. But, you know, you were mentioning Neil Young. I mean, I have on my desk, this Pono player that I bought a few years ago when he put it out as his portable player that was supposedly higher resolution it had like uh, memory chips in it you um it looks like a toblerone bar kind of um i could not hear the difference i tried everything i loaded up an mp3 i put on i bought a high res version of the same song i put on my stereo i used headphones didn't work but uh i would say today i simply bought the service cobuz q-o-b-u-z no one pronounces it right because it's from France and it's like they don't use a U after the Q. And I and I and I also always have I've paid for Spotify since it's you know since forever. And so when I go and I take my 12-year-old and I'm like, dude, listen to this, and I put on a, a song, it's obvious. I mean, it's obvious that you you can hear it and uh, on my stereo, which is bookshelf speakers, you can hear the difference. And of course, like he's like, and my son likes music, he has a record player, but he's like, Dad, but Spotify has Dana Carvey podcast. You know, like he's not going to ditch Spotify for Cobas, but I just get both. Mm-hmm. You know, because Cobas is the same price. It's just they don't have all the programming and stuff. You know. Yeah. Does that make yeah. any sense? Well, it does. It does. But I, I want to, I want to hop back to something you mentioned. So you have a, you have an intermediating device between your phone and your headphones. Um, which is interesting to me because so I have I don't have Spotify. I have Amazon Music. I listen to Amazon Music because I do everything through Amazon. It's you know praise Bezos. Uh, but the uh, but you know the 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 songs on there. Some of them are described as HD Atmos, 
whatever. And is it is it actually making any difference, or do I need to do something else to actually hear the the quality versus a you know kind of standard MP3? Well, are you listening on your phone or on your computer? I gener- I usually am listening on my phone. Yeah, I think if it's an iPhone, I mean, I think you need, you know, the thing I have is like a dragonfly. You can look it up. It's like a little teeny DAC that is, a, a DAC is, by the way, I mean, I have one also on my stereo now, which I bought. I consider the DAC to be, it's like the tape deck component of the olden days. It's it's a component. It just is a box that sits on your stereo and goes between your digital files, converting them back into analog, which you know, to explain why that works or how that works would take forever. But, you know, it converts them back into analog to go into your stereo if you have, you know, if that's important to you. Um, I believe I'm not 100 percent certain, but I believe that you would need like this little dragonfly thing. And they're not. I mean, I think they're like ninety nine, one ninety nine, two ninety nine, that range. They're not that expensive. It's just then you got to remember to bring it and have, you know, and get. But I think mm-hmm. you need that if you want to get the most out of uh, out of your thing. But look. All this stuff we're talking about, it's like, I don't know what headphones you have. They might be awesome, you know, and I might be listening on worse headphones. I don't really use headphones. I use earbuds, which are the worst, you know, like, I mean, they're, the the ones I use are okay, but I use them when I'm running. So I'm sure that mm-hmm. they're not wired. So they're probably worse than, than, than anything else. But all this stuff is like, what is your weakest link? Like, is your record player the weakest link? Is your media the weakest link? Is your room the weakest link? It's all part of the same mix and it's all about trade-offs and ultimately the only way to really win this to get the best sound or as good a sound as you can get is to be like a basically like a a lonely old man in a basement with like billions of dollars and like I don't want to be that person I want to have great sound but I also want to like have my family around like listening to the records and my wife saying like turn that television record down or whatever that is you know it's like it's too grating you know i want i want that part of the mix here um and 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 so that's where i'm at you know what has your equipment equipment journey been like what what have you uh, could you walk us through some of the uh upgrades that you have made over the course of both as, just as a listener but also you know reporting out and telling the story well i had a panasonic uh receiver from the 70s which was pretty good still have it. It's a good receiver. Uh, I think it's called the 737. I like that receiver. But then like when I was trying to get into this, you start getting like, what does this sound like? What is that? So I thought I should get a Macintosh. Macintosh is like the audiophile universe receiver. So, and then I like old stuff. So I, I, I made it even worse on myself. So I bought a Macintosh 1900 receiver, which is from like the early seventies. I bought it from a dude on the internet. It came here. Um, I couldn't figure out it, it. It wasn't that power, that high powered. So I couldn't figure out how to make it work with my speakers. Right. So then I ordered like, while this was going on, my wife was teaching. She was abroad in like Jordan. So so good for her because it was a nightmare. So I got all these speakers delivered to my house from like Amazon. Cause I knew I could like return them without any punishment. I misread something on the internet and I bought powered speakers, you know, like power, speakers that you put sure. on your, on your computer. Uh, monitor. And uh, what I didn't understand is that when I put those connected those to the Mac, it blew it up somehow. Like it, it just something popped and it was dead. So it's like, okay, I've already spent like 900 bucks on this thing. What do I do? And then there's a company that, you know, there are, you can't just bring this down to like the, the, you know, the best buy or something. So I had to like figure out how to get it to these guys, audio classics I found in Western New York, 
but you have to send it to him and the thing weighs 190 pounds. So it's like sending it was like $120 and like has to be built their own box. Already you can see this a nightmare. And the other sure. thing that happened is when I started wiring my speakers, I was standing on a chair and um, I thought I could get behind there. I guess this is why people get electricians. And I fell off the chair. And as I fell off the chair, I broke one of the doors on our bookcase that was right there. So I like called my wife. I was like, I, I, I just got this stereo. This blew up. Broke the case. And she said, to her credit, she was like, look, it's just money. Don't worry about it. Just figure <laughs> out where you need to. So, so I sent the Macintosh off. Got it sent back to me. Um, hooked that up. I had a, I traded, there was a man, very nice man, but he was, uh, had problems with his back and he was very overweight. And um, I found him on the internet and he had a, 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 an old turntable, an acoustic research XA, which is from the early sixties, which looked cool. And I traded him my turntable, which is just a regular new turntable, but it was automatic. Like at the end of the record, you didn't have to stand up. And t- so I got that, I put that on there. I put the, I bought these Harbeth bookshelf speakers. They were like $3,000. They're from England. All the audiophiles said they were amazing. I got those, put that on there. And I had a system. It was working out well. Then I started meeting all these people and they were all like <laughs> mocking my system so badly, but also like I was talking with, like I had a friend in New York who's an architect and is really, really into stereo equipment. And he was like, he had this amazing turntable, this techniques sp10 it's like a prize turntable and he and he but he wanted a better one and he was going to build the plinth which is the platform that sits in it and he was going to build it in virginia and he had like he showed me there was like a it was so heavy it had to be lifted on like a truck and um so he sold me his he said i'll send you sell you my turntable so i bought that turntable off him and then the mac was cool but i kind of was fascinated by tubes i know that sounds weird but you hear it a lot in guitars, you know, people get yep. tube amplifiers. Tubes were how, you know, uh, amps were made back in the 50s and 60s, and then they went out for transistors. But now a lot of people like tubes again. They say, oh, it's rich or war- whatever. Then I found this cool company in Pennsylvania. And um, what's what's really interesting about this universe is that, um, you know, all these audio people who are listening on their equipment that's worth tens of thousands or hundreds of, you know, they get it for very little money. I'd say something like that. That's not me. So like I would get, um, this amplifier to try out. And then if I liked it, um, I called the, you know, I guess the benefit is I got to try it out, you know, but if I liked it, mm-hmm. I called up the company. I was like, Hey, I'd like to buy this. So I bought it, you know? So that thing was not cheap. I gotta be honest. And then, <laughs> and then the funny thing is these beautiful Harvest speakers, these amazing speakers, I realized they were still just not loud enough because I have bookshelf speakers. So I started looking all over the place and I was like, you know what, maybe I need new speakers. And I don't, didn't understand this, but you know, there are low powered speakers and high powered speakers. The DBs are important and I didn't really get that at all, but now I do. So I found this company called Focal uh, that puts out Focal Area 906. Those are the speakers. And I bought those and I sold my Harbots on, on the internet uh, for less than I bought them for whatever and whatever. And I finally had my system in place. And I got to tell you, like, I've still gone over places to see people who have you know giant speakers and massive systems and it's okay like i can i I can live with that like my system sounds really good like when i put a a record on or if i put a digital file in through that deck 
it sounds fantastic. I don't need to do any better than this. And for me, the search at this point is really for music. So it's like if I find I found a, a really old copy of Odyssey and Oracle, the great zombies record, when we were going to a wedding a couple weeks ago in in uh, uh, Long Island. That's where I feel good now. I'm not like going through stereo catalogs and going like, oh, this this is a great re- receiver, but I I need better, you know, or like how do I rebuild this room? Because it's just not, it, I'm very happy. I mean, what I have is so great to me. You're, th- what you just described reminds me of a, a very funny line from your, uh, your piece where I think one of your sources says, look, you can, you can spend a million dollars and get around, you can spend a million dollars on a formula one car and get around the track in two minutes, or, or you can spend $10 million on a car and get around the track in two minutes minus one second, right? Like you can, like if you, once you get to a certain point there, the, the cost starts getting exponentially higher for every marginal improvement, um, which is interesting, but it, it also kind of uh, leads me to a question I have about who the new vinyl boom is really for. So, you know, I go to Target and I walk to the checkout and I see a rack of like an end cap, an end cap unit of like Taylor Swift vinyl or Adele vinyl. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I like this is obviously selling very well. If Target is placing it here, lots of people are buying this. But the people I assume who are buying these are not the folks who are spending $10,000 on a setup at home. It's kids. I mean, kids are buying Adele albums and Taylor Swift albums, right? Like, who is, who is, what do, what do, the, what did the people you talk to uh, believe that the, the real audiences for this new wave of vinyl enthusiasm that we're seeing? Well, there, you know, I have Taylor Swift. I mean, like, I, I mean, you know, the thing is, I think that there are certain transcendent artists who are always going to be able to sell whatever they make. So there is a group of people that'll just buy anything that a certain artist puts out because they want the product. You know what I mean? Um, but I also think that, I mean, I just know from this story, I've been hearing from a lot of people who, one, have never had records before or haven't never really thought about these things. Even our design team, when we played the sound samples showing the difference between the record and the digital or the low-res digital and the high-res digital, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe that, you know? And I, 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 got, I got messages from, like Chris Stein from Blondie sent me a screenshot of his successful guess at which Carol King file was low res or high res. You know, even people who've been at this forever are like taking pride and suddenly thinking about it differently. So I don't know the answer to your question because I haven't done a market research study, but I will tell you that even in my own little town where, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm feeling like an old man now, but people will come up to me because they, now they know me as like knowing sound, which, you know, in this audiophile world, I'm like such a joke uh, uh, who knows nothing. But in this town, I'm the, I'm the king, damn it. I'm the record <laughs> king. But they come up and they're like, hey, we really want to get into this. Like, it'd be fun to get some records. Like, what do we do? And it's a little daunting to, to people coming in from the outside. But, you know, for kids, it's not. They just go to like Urban Outfitter and get like a like one of those crappy suitcase things that look cool yeah. and they listen to their records yeah. until the record player breaks. The beauty of this though is like I've helped a couple of friends with this. This this I didn't even put them in the story, but I found them in in my search and I I, I love this company. Um and I bought like two different turntables for people from this company called U-Turn. 
And um, they just, they don't sell on like Amazon or anything or, or on in stereo catalogs, but they make this turntable. It's like, I was interviewing the guy, Billy Fields, who is the head of Warner's distribution uh, vinyl program. And I noticed this little turntable behind him. And I always say to people, I go, what do you got there? And the, he's like, oh, I got this U-turn turntable. It just sounds really good. It's like really basic. I, you know, I used to help them when they were starting out. So I called that company. They make a turntable. It's $239 and then $269 if you have a preamp put into it, which basically means you don't need a receiver. You can go directly into speakers with that turntable. It's $269. It has its own cartridge. Like a, a, a so it's a, it's a real turntable and it sounds really good and it's not like those ones that as I said were in the little suitcase that break down so I bought one of these brought them over to my friend's house we set it up in their living room and they love it it's just like they're buying records they never they're they're younger than I am so they didn't experience the actual original like oh there are records you know used records to buy in the late seventies or early eighties. Um, or all through the eighties for them, this is a completely new thing and it's very enjoyable. And I don't, I don't know why. I mean, you'd have to like connect electrodes to their brains and find out, but I mean, I'm sure that it's enjoyable because music is enjoyable and it's universal and they're finally able to kind of feel this connection with it in a way that they didn't before. And that's not because it sounds better. That's because of the whole, like the whole thing, you know, it, maybe it sounds better. Maybe they think it sounds better. They're sitting down together. They're putting something physically on something. They're holding up that record looking at, you know, it's all part of the same thing. And you know what, how you weigh each element of that, I don't know, but clearly something's happened here because people are buying records beyond what, you know, what we can press. Yeah, well, that the the physical infrastructure is is a totally fascinating question because I you know you you talk about this a little bit in your story, but you know we used to have tons of record stamping plants. You you there you know because we were putting out what, forty five million copies of whatever you know uh, I I forget what the actual number is, but the the we're putting we used to be putting out tens of millions of LPs every year, and obviously that stopped when we switched to CD and then you know MP three whatever. Um, and it's trying to come back, but it's limited, right? I mean, the, the the actual physical capacity of the ability to press records is simply not what we need right now. Well, there was, a, I mean, the guy from, you know, Billy Fields, again, he said that we need to press about 350 million records and we can, we can press about 170 million. And I noticed that because, like, I would talk to Questlove about um, uh, his amazing documentary on the Harlem uh uh, cultural festival. What's that called? That's called um, summer, summer, of Love? summer of soul, summer of soul, yeah. summer of soul. Summer summer of soul. soul. Yeah. So, and I would say to him, cause I know this guy has like 250,000 records in his house. I'd be like, why are you putting out the soundtrack on CD and digital, but not on record right now? And he'd be like, I can't get it pressed. Like I, you know, or I'd see Nirvana was doing an anniversary for Nevermind and it was, again, it was coming out on CD and digital and the records weren't going to come until like four months later. I mean, Nirvana, it wasn't like little folk singers who were like getting pushed out by, you know, Jay-Z or something, which is what you people would want to present. It was everyone. There just isn't enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, I don't know if you've seen these pictures, but I mean, I, I always remember as a kid looking at these pictures of like auto plants in Detroit, like the Packard plant. And it was like this just, you know, all these crumbling buildings with like empty parking lots and like, you know all those weeds coming through. And it was kind of like that at a certain point in the music industry, they were like, Hey, records are dead. And so they just, 
destroyed all the record pressing plants or converted them into CD plants, which record pressing plants were nasty and they're dirty places full of junk. CD plants, it's like a, a operation, you know, room. It has to be mm-hmm. incredibly clean and and pristine. And so they just got rid of all these plants and now they're just trying to build them back. I mean, Mobile Fidelity is building one in California, Vital Me Please, which does really great box sets. They're building one in Colorado and um, they're just trying, you know, we saw Jack White making a plea, like build more pressing plants, you know, Um, they're, they're trying to figure out a way to keep up with it because there's no precedent for this. I mean, eight tracks didn't go out and then come back. Tapes didn't go out and come back. CDs haven't, there's, there's no real, you know, 78s. There's no real precedent Mm -hmm. for a, a, a technology like this to return in this way. I want to I want to hit on that a little bit because I, I, one of the things that is kind of an undercurrent in your story uh, that that doesn't quite come to the surface but gets a couple mentions is I, I will use this word the scourge of flippers the 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 people who buy the limited release copies and then sell them on eBay for. Uh, uh, you know, 400% markup. Um, I have some experience with this in various things that I buy and collect, right? Like this is, this is kind of a, a thing that happens in every industry where collectibles become, uh, harder to, harder to obtain. Um, how do, how do the musicians you talk to feel about these guys? How do the record store owners you talk to feel about these guys? I mean, there's, there's one record store owner you talk to living, who lives in Cleveland, works out of Cleveland. And she's like, look, I could put it on ebay and make a ton more money but that's violating the spirit of record store day um but it has to be frustrating to see these these limited releases immediately go for tons more money to what amount to middlemen speculators yeah and you know i don't know what that leads to long term because like when i was a kid i loved baseball cards right and um like baseball cards, you just went to the store and like bought them in packs or you went to the baseball card store and you could buy like a few very special ones. Like, Ooh, there's Willie Mays, 1956. That's $35. But at a certain point, like, well, I'll tell you when the point is 1986, suddenly all the old men were like, Oh, baseball cards are worth so much. And they bought like endless boxes of baseball cards and didn't open them, you know, left the gum in there, everything. And baseball cards suddenly were worth nothing. So, you know, I don't know what that amounts to with records. It, it, it's frustrating to me because, you know, if I want to hear a record, like they put out, um, Willie Nelson had that record, Teatro, I think. It's from like 1997 that Daniel Lenoir produced. I love that record. I just love it. And when I look at it online, it's, it, they put out a record store day version of that. And it's like $400, like who would do that? And then I also don't know, like, what's the difference between what something is listed at and what its true value is? You know, that's that's mm-hmm. a pretty good question, because, um, you know, when they put out these records on the electric recording company, and they sell out immediately and then they're up on eBay for a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. Is someone buying those or are they just listed as that and they're hoping that they get an offer? It, it's it's hard to tell. I, you know, I thought it was great that Brittany, the record store owner in Cleveland, was so like loyal and 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 felt that way but i don't think that's how i mean when i talked to chad Cassim at analog productions they reissue a lot of records he was saying you know that he had no problem with the flippers that it was just part of the business i don't know there's just something about mm-hmm. it feels like music art all that, it's like you know i feel the same way as when i read about uh you know a really wealthy art collector 
gobbling up like everything at the art fair, putting it in a, a you know factory building so that'll it'll just go up in value. Because then you just as often you hear the story that he decides it's worth nothing and he just liquidates all his stuff and ruins the value for the artist. You know, I mean, the thing that's like really mm-hmm. interesting about this to me is that also I don't think artists have any knowledge or any information on this. I don't think they're at all informed. I don't think that Carol King or Graham Nash or Elvis Costello or, you know, Dr. Dre, I don't think they're sitting around going like, well, I wonder what reissue is coming out and how much they're charging for it and what the packaging is like. I just, I don't think they're, they're that involved in that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the, one of the, another of the undercurrents uh, in your story is the, the idea of, Quality versus accessibility, quality versus ease of access, more or less. Right. And I, one of the reasons I love this story, even though, again, I am not an audiophile, I I for the record, uh, for everybody listening out there, I tried to get into vinyl relatively recently, bought a turntable and it just like it doesn't it doesn't do the same thing for me that it does for everybody else. But God love you. Uh, but I am uh, I am a movie guy and I am a collector of physical, you know, I, I prefer physical media, UK Blu-rays, whatever, um, UHD Blu-rays, getting the high quality stuff because it looks better. It looks better. It sounds better. Um, and I, I can, I can see that and I can feel it and I can, I can hold it. I can look at the packaging and and the labeling and all that. So I do get it, but there, there is this, uh, there, there is this, um, kind of tension in both industries, which is, you know, you have the vast majority of people who just want access to stuff. They just want what's streaming on Netflix or they just want what's streaming on Spotify. Um, And then you have a a much smaller market that is like, we want to collect the best versions of these things. How does, how does the music industry kind of balance that? How do they, how do they make sure not to, uh, how, how do they figure out which of these, audiences to service best or is it even a is it does it even really matter i mean is 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 it so easy to do both that they can just be like all right we're going to do both well it seems to me like they can do both and they figured out how to do both but they haven't really applied it yet like i don't i guess what i don't understand is and and i totally respect where you're coming from music wise because what you're describing with film is exactly the same thing i mean it's i don't have the feeling i do like if i'm watching a film i would rather have it on dvd than to be, and I hate when people send me like, here's an advanced link you can watch on your computer. It's just something about it. It just drives me bananas. But, but here's the thing. If you're a consumer of music through digital means, which it sounds like you are, why shouldn't the digital music you're listening to sound as good as it can sound? It doesn't cost anyone anything more. It doesn't. It's just, a, it, you know, I mean, does it cost something to convert it? I, I don't I'm, I'm not sure, you know, but it's it's for the amount of money that's coming through this industry or this entertainment industry. If there is a cost at making it, uh, you know, a higher resolution, it's minimal. And so why shouldn't you be given a better sounding version of that, whether you're asking for it or not? And then as far as this other level, like signing up for, you know, the advanced sale of this Yusef Latif box set, that's really up to you. You have to decide how much you care about this and what it means to you. I mean, if you don't get any joy out of your record player, why would you consume records, right? It's like, it makes no sense at all. Anybody can tell you to, and you're not going to want to do it. And so like, you know, I feel like the, 
they figured it out. I mean, Concord, which puts out the craft recordings, these, you know, the, the Yusuf Latif thing I was just mentioning, they did Miles Davis, they put out these small batch series. Uh, they come out 3,000 to 5,000 copies. They're about 100 bucks each. Um, that's a major, you know, that's not an indie label. That's a major label putting out mainstream music in a, in a way they would deem special. I mean, Analog Productions, they do tons and tons of reissues of really, they're, they're putting out reissues of Steely Dan on this new, on this technology called UHQR. That's, you know, the box sets are going to be $150. They say they're going to sound better than ever. They just put out a new Miles Davis kind of blue. So it's like, that is all there and available. But for somebody who's just listening on their phone or like on their computer, like, why shouldn't it be better? It doesn't cost them anymore. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Uh, that was everything I wanted to ask you. Uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked if there's anything you think folks should know about, uh, I don't know, the, the, um, world of high quality music and, and digital recordings. And people should, I want to, I want to emphasize that people should go read this story. There are cool little interactive things that you can do with it. Uh, I'll have a link in the, the email newsletter that goes out with this, but, uh, what should I, what should I have asked you about, uh, the perfect sound. Well, I just hope people, I'd like people to read that story with the understanding that like, it's not written for the people that I'm covering in that story. It's written for you. I mean, it's it, the reason that I pitched this and I spent so much time on it is because, you know, whether you're walking down the street, listening on your iPhone, or again, if you're in your basement with like a chair marked off by painter's tape, because you have to be in a specific location to hear things. Um, music's universal. I mean, like music is everything and it's important. And so I just would hope people would just think a little bit more about why they listen to music and how they listen to music and figure out if they want to, you know, change it in any way. You don't have to. I mean, there's really nothing wrong with listening any way you do, but you might find that, you know, you're curious and you want to get into it and it's not that hard. Again, everybody should go read the story. It's really wonderful. And like I said, I am not uh, a music guy. I'm a I'm a video guy. I can I can talk all day about negatives and inner positives and transfers and all that stuff. Uh, but I learned a ton. I learned a ton, and I think it's really interesting. And maybe I'll give that turntable another shot. Maybe I will sit down and you know start. Don't tell my wife uh, when I start buying like four thousand dollars speakers. She'll you know. I'll get I'll get a box of I'll get a box of records (laughs) together for you and send them right off. Okay, don't worry. All right, all right, Uh, Jeff. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, My name is Sunny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at the Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. (laughs) 